It's Emily and Caitlin, ATX Festival co-founders, programmers, executive directors, sponsorship coordinators, fan experience directors, all the things covered by the two of us and our stellar team at ATX HQ. Laura, Jen, Sally, that's you guys. We're a few weeks into the panel releases from season seven, so we hope you've been enjoying the sampling of both series conversations like The Americans and Breaking Bad and topical panel conversations like Inside the Writer's Room and this one, Emerging Studios. ATX is made up of both of those things. It's TV camp where fan and industry conversations cross over. We aren't a convention or a conference. Truly, it's TV camp for grownups. Please check us out at atxfestival.com and take a listen back to the other podcasts we've released. The first six episodes are original one-on-one conversations inspired by ATX panels, but the last five have been live from the festival this past June. You can enjoy them if you are at the festival and want to relive them, or catch the ones that conflicted with other programming you might have missed. Or if you weren't able to make it this year, you can just pretend you went. (laughs) So today's release is called Emerging Studios, and it came from conversations with our advisory board member, Kathleen McCaffrey, who's at HBO, and her friend and colleague, Ali Krug, who's at Annapurna TV. We asked them for industry topics we should include at the festival, and they said the rise of the Emerging Studio. In case you don't know, the Emerging Studio is the company that's bigger than a production company, but smaller than an established major studio like Warner Brothers and Sony. How are they finding their place in today's TV landscape? How are they challenging the major players and working with both networks and platforms? So without further delay, here's Emerging Studios. Thank you. How are we doing? Good? Great. I'm going to now introduce the panel. I actually can't see which order we're in. Um, So first we have Poncho Mansfield from E1. If he can come on out. (laughs) And then we have Allie Krug from Annapurna. And then Lauren Whitney from Miramax. And lastly, we have Marcy Wiseman from Blumhouse. Thank you all for being here. We are here today to talk about um, how TV's made, how the landscape has changed, and here we have four executives who make a lot of shows. Um, So if we can first start by just, if we want to start with Poncho down there, if we can just go down the line and I would love for, to have you introduce yourself, talk a little bit about where you work, what you do at the studio, and a couple of the shows that you're working on, just so that the audience has a sense of who you are. Um, my name is Poncho Mansfield. I work at uh, Entertainment One Television. I oversee uh, scripted television for the studio. We are a indie studio that, are, that uh, pride ourselves one, originating in Canada and being particularly global. That's one of the things that distinguishes us. We have uh, hubs uh, of development in Los Angeles, Toronto, London, and Sydney, and we produce for those markets. But we also start our Monday mornings looking around the world, talking to our teams, and whoever's got a good idea, then we decide how we build it. So we are, uh, you know, while we are growing as a studio, uh, we are uh, also about 1,100 strong uh, um, team. We have a big uh, music division. We have a feature division. We uh, uh, own and distribute Peppa Pig. You guys may be too uh, <laughs> maybe too young to know that much about Peppa Pig or PJ Mask. But uh, uh, so there's a real range of stuff, and it's a, it's a, a very exciting time. Happy to be here. Um, my name is Allie Krug. I work at Annapurna. Um, We uh, started the television division uh, in October 2016 um, and, you know, really just trying to do what Annapurna Films has done um, historically in the past and what they built their TV, or sorry, their film studio on um, and just emulating kind of the artist-friendly, artist-first mandate. Um, So... Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. We have a smaller, much smaller team than that. We're um, 10 of us um, right now and and growing. Um, But we act as both producers uh, and and a studio as well. 
Uh, my name is Lauren Whitney. I was an agent for 20 years and then about four years ago left uh, to go work at Legendary Television and help build that company and we made shows like Lost in Space and Looming Tower. Am I too close? Um, uh, shows that you might have seen. And um, in October, I left Legendary and came to Miramax to build a television div division at Miramax. Um, I think the thing that really excited me about coming here is we have this spectacular library of some of the best movies that any of us can remember. And often, I think, often they're based on books. And by definition, you have to be really reductive and take a book and really squeeze it down to make it into a film. And so now that we can, in this moment of peak television, make these unbelievably ambitious, enormous um, television shows, it's it's kind of the best version of being able to take underlying material. It was exploited in the best possible way a decade ago, and now it's going to be exploited in the best possible way here. So that is what this is going up and down on me. <laughs> that is what. Um, I'm focused on, uh, and we also have international distribution that's been distributing the library for a long time. So um, that's, that is what we're doing, and I'm happy to be here too. Hi, I'm Marcy Wiseman, and I'm co-president of Blumhouse Television. I um, came to Blumhouse um, almost exactly two years ago, uh, having been at other places that were emerging studios. I um, was involved at Fox 21 um, at its inception, AMC Studios at its inception. I worked with Poncho at E1. And um, when I came to Blumhouse Television, we like to say it was Blumhouse 2.0, which was really moving from the um, role of being a production company into being a full service studio. You guys are probably familiar with our film company. Uh, we make low budget horror movies and we've made actually a lot of television for many years, but the goal was to be in control of our own destiny in TV in the same way that we are on the film side and so we um, went out and raised a bunch of money and uh, we're a full service studio. We produce and deficit and distribute. And we like to say on the TV side, our filter is a little bit more broad than um, on the film side. It's not just about the monsters under the bed, but also the things that keep us up at night, which allows us to make things like sharp objects, as well as the purge, as well as genre anthology series, and um, to do some things in the political arena, we're making a series for Showtime based on the rise and fall of Roger Ailes, which is not horror, but we like to say horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> which might get me in trouble in Texas, but nonetheless. <laughs> Well, so we're all here because um, the four of you work at these emerging studios, and historically, we've seen the landscape dominated by these major independent studios like Sony, um, these network-based studios, you know, like NBC Universal or 20th Century Fox. Why do you think it is that we're seeing these emerging studios sort of have a moment, if you will? Well, I think it's probably multifold. Um, all of us here are really serving different parts of the marketplace, even though we make a broad swath of content. But the ability to be um, closer to the artist, to be brand focused, and to be flexible in working with the buyer side of the equation. So I, all of us are full content, or pure content play companies. We focus on making content. and. When you're making content and you don't have your own means of initial distribution, it makes you very flexible in finding partnerships. And um, we've, we've found, and I'd say I'd have this experience in other places as well, that the, the major buyers are more willing to do business first and foremost with their related companies, and then second, um, and often equally as interested in working with independents rather than what they view as their competitive set. Mm -hmm. I, I also would just say, you know, um, I I believe that the the best content comes out of an ecosystem in television that is very healthy, and that means that there is a buyer and there is somebody a studio in the middle that's making and kind of shepherding, and then there is a creative entity. And while there are 
lots of places that are making great shows where there is no studio entity in the middle or it's a vertically integrated studio, which oftentimes is just a different set of employees in the same building reporting to the same people. Um, uh, and they're making great shows. I do think there's something to be said for people who have a different mandate, who are focused on a different thing. And the back and forth of that often leads to a better show. And so there have always been kind of outliers in the television business. And at the moment, the outliers are studios like us. Um, but I think it's important that every company has a mandate and every company has a way that they're going to succeed and build a business. Um, the in-house production entities are focused on a business model that's not about them necessarily. It's about the whole. And so um, I think there's certainly a question to be asked about where the creator and the protection of the creator comes in there. Um, and then also, frankly, like with Sharp Objects, which I saw last night, which is exceptional, um, our place and our security comes from having IP and having ideas that are special and that people want. And as long as we have those and we control them, as you said, then we continue to have a place in the business. And, and that's key. Um, and and the, the challenge, of course, is that a lot of the buyers, the, the streamers, the networks would prefer not to have an independent studio. Is Even though, and I think you're absolutely right, there is a creative uh, upside to it. You have someone to, to advocate, someone who's reasonable, uh, 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 in the middle, uh, pragmatic, fiscally reasonable, and creatively reasonable, and to fight for a project that isn't all about one corporation. So the, the challenge is, so they don't, but they don't really want that because they want, the, the, with, with the advent of, you know, 400 scripted shows and maybe maybe 30 places that actually make scripted programming, it's a very, very competitive business and they want to own it. So they're not particularly interested in being being in partnership with the studio. So to Lauren's point, we need to have something that they have to have and that's material. And and you, it's very interesting, you had this wave a few years ago of where formats, formats being international television shows were sort of everything. If you had a format, you could get that going, you know. You had Israeli format that becomes Homeland. You have the Danish the killing that becomes the American the killing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then we've sort of went away from formats now. I think that's sort of gone away and it's all about either a, a, a reinventing a motion picture, or even more so, novels. And, and that, that we're in the middle of that. We've we're been involved with Lumhouse on doing Sharp Objects, which premiered last night. We're very excited about it. Uh, took a long journey, written uh, um, 12 years ago, published by Gillian Flynn. It took its time. They wanted to make it into a feature. They couldn't get it. They wrote a feature script to make it into a feature. They decided it didn't quite work. It didn't happen. And finally, six, seven, eight years later, you know, the, the world of feature TV, you know, the sort of the novelization, the Dickensian period, and it's a great period, I think, of, 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 of television. I mean, it's completely changed things. Um, happen and, and, and suddenly we're able to put, you know, when, when the gods came, you know, the, the timing is right, you're able to get Amy Adams and Jean-Marc Vallée and, and Gillian Flynn together and go do something all at once in the same schedule. But, uh, um, but IP, I, I went around there a little bit, but, but material is key. And we've at the studio have gone after over 50 pieces of, of IP, over 50 novels. And they take time. They take, it's like an, you know, it's like industrial production. It takes, you know, uh, you get the book, you negotiate it for three months. You then have to find the writer, and the writer's gonna take you six months, right? And then it takes, and it all takes, and then you decide what you're gonna write in it early, or, you, or does it pitch better? But the key thing that we have is finding material, uh, uh, having relationships with talent who have confidence that we're going to protect their experience in getting it made. Well, you mentioned this, uh, something that's increasingly prevalent in the industry, which is that we're seeing, you know, vertical integration where these broad broadcast networks and cable companies are relying on their corporate siblings to fill their schedule. And so you said one of the things that you do to set yourself apart is IP, the, you know, the, the content that you can bring to them. But what else, what else do you use to sort of sell yourself to these networks and say, hey, we're different than, you know, your corporate sibling over there? I think, I, I think... The, the way all of us have to protect our place in it is that we have to be excellent partners. We have to start being excellent partners to the creator or whatever the creative entity is, and then we have to make ourselves very good partners 
when we take it out and sell it and we're making it. Um, if people feel like you protect them, and at key moments um, when they've had a battle in front of them, you've jumped in to fight it with them, um, people tend to be grateful and appreciative of the stuff that you do. If you're not additive to a process and you're baggage, then nobody wants to talk to you again. So I feel like it's just how, how we do the job that we do. Can and, and the deals have changed. Marcia, you can speak to this. I mean, the, 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 the deals are, are, are a little more aggressive. Well, yeah, and I think that um, there's a couple distinguishing factors, too. And, you know, we're fortunate at Blumhouse that we are able to be lean forward with brand. And increasingly, um, in, a, in a universe where channels are meaningless to the viewer and the consumer, and particularly for it, it's demographically based, younger viewers don't know what a CBS show looks like, and they don't even know what CBS is. And so the opportunity really for um, independent studios is to be brand focused. Now that can be the United Artists kind of approach that Annapurna takes, it, it can be the global approach that E1 takes, or the Miramax library approach, but it really helps to have uh, a value proposition to the buyers that they can't source internally. And then you layer in the, the kind of the reason a, a nimble studio exists for talent, and I think there will continue to be a robust play for the independent studio. Well, that's a great segue into my next question, which is going to be about how you all serve different niches in the industry. You mentioned, you know, some of the differences between you guys, even though you're all independent studios. So would you mind just briefly telling us, you know, what, what needs do you serve um, in the TV industry and how, how does the content you make differ from each other? Well, I'll start and I'll just finish up what I was starting to say, which is, you know, we obviously are building on a very strong brand um, and it's a consumer facing brand, which is actually quite rare. We have um, people go to our movies because they bear the Blumhouse label and, and we have a very young audience, about 50-50 gender wise, which is great for us. Um, actually, a little more female than male. Girls like horror. Um, <laughs> common misconception. Um, and the idea is, and we find that we get a lot of incoming um, uh, calls um, for relationships to tap into the brand. And for a company like ours, the challenge and the opportunity is to take the brand and not have it be too narrow in television because we have this broad landscape of kind of experiences we can provide. We're involved with the Jinx um, years before we kind of formalized the studio. And so we have a lot of things in the true crime space. Some of them are scripted, some of them are documentary, but we're able to take those brand equities and continue to bring them to buyers. Um, I, I think I've been doing this job at this company for the shortest amount of time of anybody up here. So um, I, I can't say that Miramax yet is filling any specific niche <laughs> uh, in, in the marketplace. But I will say, um, I think that certainly the aspiration is to take um, the brand of Miramax, which also is a consumer-facing brand and also a community-facing brand, um, and continue on that. And and you know, I want us to be making shows that are incredibly ambitious. I want it to be a place where creators feel like they can come and do their best work, and they're protected and and able to do that. Um, and, and frankly, I want them to be well done. I want us all to be proud of them, um, because at the end of the day. Uh, that's a that's an important piece of what we're doing. Like it is an incredible privilege to work with the writers we get to work with and the novelists and the journalists. I'm sure you all the people that I meet doing my job is one of the you know enormous privileges of the job. And so we have to take whatever is underlying and then deliver on the promise of it in quality and um, and frankly in ambition. So that's where we're going. We'll get there shortly. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think for Annapurna Television, we're in a little bit of a different situation than, than these guys because we, um, we are very new, but we are, um, can, can be very flexible and very nimble. And so we, um, again, start with the creator, start with the writer, or start with IP and, uh, you know, hope to give them, the, the writer or filmmaker, the best creative experience possible, um, be an advocate, be passionate, block and tackle. 
people. Um, and but when we go out to pitch something, you know, we are able to be the studio in some cases or be non-writing EPs. And you, we have a number of things exactly. Together. So so you know, some of these more emerging platforms like Apple and Hulu. Um, don't have studios, so if we go to Hulu and set something up, and uh, you know the writer or filmmaker is like, Hulu is where I want to be, we can say, okay, uh, we have the opportunity down the line to be the studio if it makes sense. But if someone says, so if our writer says we want to go with HBO or FX, they like to own everything, so we can say, okay, we'll be non-writing EP. So it's really artist first, uh, but yeah, we're, we're uh, E1 brought us into a couple things, actually, where we're just producers. We certainly uh, are distinguishing ourselves by being a global company, as I mentioned, and we are, we, I think we produce 15 series right now from Sharp Objects to Designated Survivor to The Rookie to Mary Kills People that comes from our Canadian team that is on uh, Lifetime to Cardinal that comes out of our Canadian team uh, to Hulu here. Um, and we are developing a lot of material in Italy, in France. We have co-productions with the French and the Canadians on CBS. We have a show called Ransom. So that is part of what we've done to uh, uh, to distinguish ourselves. Is to to uh, and we have a particularly good uh, uh, international division, distribution division, and we don't take out tons of shows, and that's very important to the producers, to the artists, that they feel that their shows are going to be handled with care. I mean, we, we, you know, we don't have these major output deals, which are sort of going away in, in the business, but there used to be that if you did a show on Fox, they would be guaranteed X amount of money from International, they had X amount of slots, and the hap that, that didn't happen, it, and there was obviously not that much risk because you had those, but the, there was always a limit to the upside of that. So, if something like Designated Survivor that we've had, uh, the um, you know, just there was a tremendous upside by us selling it the way that we sold it. So that is part of what is appealing to the the, the producers, to the writers, is, is that we have an inter international angle. If we think now that the world has gone global, now that you know half of the things that are on television are starring Brits or directed by Brits or or Scandinavians and such and such. Uh, you know, we start to look at well, which door do we go to? You know, we have a gentleman in Moscow, which Kenneth Branagh was attached to star in, based on this, this uh, best-selling novel you may know. And that, you know, is where do we build it through? Which board door? Do we go through the British door with the BBC, or do we come into with Sky and the relationship with HBO? So you look at these things, and you, you, you know, there, there are lots of different ways to build them, and the quality. And we're also looking at other language because. We're watching television differently. Now, it was five years ago, you wouldn't have considered producing something yourself in a different language. At least these company, our company wouldn't have. And, or doing something that is a hybrid. Now that we saw, obviously, Narcos is doing very well. And we have a couple things set in Italy that, ha that, are, that are hybrids. So um, that is, you know, but the bottom line is we're producing television shows. We happen to be doing it more globally than most. But the, the key is to produce and produce them well, and the U.S. market is a huge part of our business. And not to be crass, but part of what we have to do as we're nascent and building is we have to pay more than the other guy, honestly. Um, th that's part of it. Uh, we have to pay more money up front. We have to talk about how being in business with us makes points in the show more valuable later on. Like That's a part of wooing the community. It's a, it's a big part. It's a big part. Or. You can also have. If you're, if you're mushy, mushy. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, you know, uh, we're famous on the film side for making very, very low budget films, and filmmakers get a lot of creative freedom in exchange for that. And so it's a proposition that they'll be protected by our company to make films at a very low cost and have a potentially high upside. That doesn't translate completely into television, but we actually spend time both in the very high end market and also playing with a very tight model where there's a lot of creative autonomy. We have a series for Hulu, an anthology series that will be launching in October of this year. It's a unique release pattern. We're gonna be doing um, an episode, a supersized episode, maybe like, you know, 90 minute-ish. Um, and they'll be released once a month. 
um, and they're they're thematically tied. But we have this incredible um, we've had this incredible success with filmmakers wanting to come and play with us. Um, big name stars um, because it's a, a very specific experience. It's this is genre material. They get to do something they haven't done before, and they understand the parameters um, this, of, of of the box they get to work in. We provide a lot of support. Um, we've built a kind of system around the production of those um, uh, episodes. We have a a full team of designers and line producers, so they get to bring their projects into the system. They get to plug in, and um, it's so. You know, there can also be innovation in uh, being an emerging studio that isn't just outbidding the big boys. Well, speaking of talent, we've seen Netflix Inc. nine-figure deals with two of TV's biggest creators in, in the past year, Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy. We saw Warner Brothers do it with Greg Berlanti extending his contract for reported four hundred million dollars. I'm curious how how this you know net networks or sorry studios scrambling to sign talent and keep them in house how have you felt the effects of that in your job and are overall deals appealing to the studios where you work um, I, the the deals that you're referring to are uh, very rarefied air and they involve an en enormous sums of money for people that are you know, at the top echelon of success and track record in our industry. For us, we have a, a really strong interest in working with um, creators and filmmakers who want to bet on building their own businesses. And so while we do very, very, you know, few deals in the kind of quote unquote overall space, they don't look like overalls. And what we really want to do is create tools for filmmakers who want to be entrepreneurs and want to own something and not just get a big payday and work for somebody else. Um, so I think our approach has been to create a niche of something that isn't provided in the mainstream big leagues but appeals to a certain type of creator and filmmaker. And we'll make those deals when the kind of, when the alchemy of those folks and us come together properly. Anyone else? Well, I think that's, I, I think that that's a, a key strategy of ours also is, and I think that now with the arrival of Mark Gordon, who's a very, very uh, accomplished producer uh, and was running his studio that used to be part of, partly owned by E1, now is completely owned by E1, and Mark is the chief creative officer of E1. I think that we are looking at some larger, larger deals, but the deals that the, the, the referencing are, are these massive uh, a are very you in the four hundred million dollar deal business? <laughs> I would be so thrilled no. to hear that you yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just for yeah, you, yeah. for fun. We're not. We, we, I don't think we're talking about that. But um, <laughs> I, I think. Listen, I think we just have to. Uh, uh, you know, that, those things are always going to happen, and they're they're, uh, they're they're rare. And I think you just have to find great shows with great talent. And yes, occasionally you're going to pay some people even more money. And we are certainly exploring uh, situations where they own more of the shows or own really own parts of the show so they can have a tremendous upside. That's a part of, there, there are many different models that are working on that. I think the, the cost of every part of the television business seems to be growing at this exponential rate. I remember when we first all heard about how much they were spending per episode of, on Game of Thrones. Do you remember? And people flipped out. It was like, how are you spending? I forget what it was. What was it, like 12 or 13? in the early days, um, and it just felt like, how could that possibly be? And you hear these numbers, like those deals, and it's like, how can that possibly be? But if we made a list of how many shows are being made for north of $10 million an episode, there, like, we'll, there are a lot of them, and that's a new moment. Um, I, I think it's fun, it's, it's fun that there seem to be absolutely no constraints on where this can go. Um, it just means, honestly, the bigger the shows, sometimes the more fun they are, the more exciting they are to the audience. Um, but we all, you know, I don't know how many people work at Warner Brothers, but it's a lot of people. And there are a lot of people who have their eye on what $400 million, how that affects the whole business, right? All of us, as we're building, 
have to have a forecast of where are we going and how are we going to get there? Are we making overall deals? Is that a term that really applies anymore? Is there a new version of an overall deal that's like a year? This is something I did at Legendary. It was a year long and it was a very healthy amount of money and that person was with me physically in the office and we basically had a year to get a show sold. And we did. Um, you can call it an overall deal, you can call it a premium script deal, like it, it almost doesn't matter. The, but the question is, how do you put together the teams of people who are gonna sell these shows for you? And as we've all been talking about, we can be very flexible because there's no 40 year precedent that any of us are worried about. You know, we can just do what we feel we need to do to, to scale quickly. Well, speaking of inflated prices, I know that this came up, Pancho, at the Sharp Objects panel last night. Um, but I'm curious if, if you got, because I know that Marcy and... Still, still less money than she was talking about. <laughs> no, still less, still less money than... Still yeah, less I was going to say, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, there are a few shows that are... But, in but, that range. And there are companies like but, Netflix but the, who are but, saying but, that they want to continue to do that. $7 million dollar an episode yes. thing is becoming normal. Yes. Now, let's, let's also, the truth is, you know, we're also making shows that are a million dollar an episode comedies. There are still scrappy productions out there. Depends on who you're making it for. And there's, there, it's wonderful that you can, you know, you have this luxury every here and there to, you know, to, to make things at the best quality that you can possibly make it. They still have to work, they still have to have their own magic, but it's nice that every here and there, and that's certainly the case with Sharp Objects, is that every tool that you need at the time, the talent, the, the additional special effects, whatever it was it, that it deserved in terms of music, you know, that's one of the great things about working with HBO is they don't make a tremendous amount of stuff, but they absolutely back it. It is, it, it is premium quality. Uh, but they're, so, so, you know, they're, 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 we're, you know, we feel the cost, but we're also making shows that are half the cost or less. But I'm curious, where, where do you draw the line and how, what does that conversation with? Well, I mean, a lot of the line is drawn, okay, who you're making the show for. All right. If you're making for the show for a place, if you're for making for a streamer, right? If you're making it for Netflix or you're making it for Amazon, and they're buying it and they're paying you premium, and that premium changes. What they do is they they pay for the entire production and they will pay you a. Marcy, you're much more expert on this than I am. They'll pay you a premium, 15, 20, 25, 30 percent premium, and it changes with time. So there, you know, you're going to make, and that's the money you're making, and you're going to make profit. You've got money, and you're going to distribute that whoever owns part of the show. Um, and but if you know that they're if they're doing it, and it's you're not, you have to risk making sure you don't go over budget. But but if you know they're paying for all of it, and they're willing to go up to six, seven, eight million, ten million dollars, that's a lot easier to do than if you're making it and you're deficiting thirty percent of the budget because you're making it for the USA Network or someone that it, that they're usually they're usually advertiser supported, right? Right? Okay, and. Um, or Hulu, though. You know, Hulu pays in general somewhere around 70% of the, the, the budget, and you know, you are deficiting 30% of the budget, and you're distributing it to the world. But the larger the budget gets, the more risk you have. Okay, so it's easier to agree to a, a, a large budget if you're somewhere that's, that's paying the full freight. Is that fair, well, Marcy? I think that's true, but I also think in one of the powers of being an independent studio is also understanding the material you're developing and what both the aspirations of the people that bring it to you and that you aspire to bring into a project, and also taking things to the market and working with the buyers on what the right positioning of a project is, both from a marketing standpoint and a creative standpoint, but a cost profile as well. I mean, you know, we'll see, hopefully you all love what we're doing for Hulu, but it's a brand new experiment. And one of the things that we did when we talked to them about it is we had a holistic discussion about what we thought we could do, the ambition of what we were trying to do, where we thought the price point should be, um, conversations about if we were lucky enough to get really exciting actors and directors to be involved, whether they would help support that beyond the budget. And you know, we we have movie stars in um, in several of them: Jimmy Simpson, TV star, um, but Tom Bateman, Dermot Mulroney, um, and these are folks that I think when we started making the series, we 
weren't sure would come to the table. We thought we might be, you know, only working with emerging talent. And so I actually think one of the exciting parts about being at an emerging studio is to be in an engaged conversation with the buyers about the high-low discussion. Um, because you also want the, look, we're taking deficits on these shows, but more importantly, you want the buyers to have a positive outcome as well. And that's both a, a viewer outcome, but also something that makes sense for their platform. And so, you know, you calibrate, and if you're in an engaged discussion about that, it really helps. And, you know, we, we're producing for streamers, for new platforms, a series coming out at the end of July for Facebook, um, based on a very well-known um, and uh, YA novel called The Sacred Lives of Minnow Bly, with um, a showrunner who just came off of um, Jessica Jones, and it's a kind of, you know, twisted fairy tale. And um, all of those discussions, they wanted to go with a half-hour drama format. And when we were trying to scope both the production value we wanted to have to create the fairy tale environment in a kind of sophisticated way, but also understand what that looked like for a five-day, or I'm sorry, for a 30-minute project, we spent a lot of time working through where the right price point was. And we were very open with each other that we were going to not under budget it, but we were going to learn what it took to do a drama that felt like it had the storytelling of a premium service, but in a half hour format. And that super exciting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And you all, you work with broadcast networks, you work with cable networks, you work with streaming services and new emerging streaming services. How, how does that change the types of shows that you make and how you do your job depending on which outlet you're working with? And do you prefer working with certain ones and not others? Oh, who is answering that question? <laughs> <laughs> you're going to say who you like working with best? Um, no, go. <laughs> go. You, you love anyone that's actually buying them. Yeah. Come on. I mean, you love them all. And you love them if they're buying. And you, love, and you also, you, you're, you know, and, and we do broadcast shows, and we've got, we're really excited about this Nathan Fillion, The Rookie. It's going to be great. It's going to be a big hit for, for ABC. Um, and, and we're doing sharp objects, and they're completely different worlds. And, and we're doing um, little comedies for pop. So and they're all your children, you love them equally, and you try to have a good time wherever you, you, you make them, and you try to enjoy the process. And we are, you know, uh, uh, and it's fun, I think, it's to, to, to echo Lauren, one of the great things about this business is you get to live in different worlds for, you know, that, that you couldn't live in real life and, and you come in and you're dealing with the mob for a while. I had my mob period. Um, and, um, and I think, and they're, they're just different animals. A, a, a procedural for CBS is very, is very different from sharp objects. And, and, and the business model is different. We are very, to, to, to echo Mark, we do think about, even in early development, well, okay, this is what this is. This will have to be at a streamer. This will have to be at that because it is, you know, it, it is too huge a production. And we are living in a time of feature DV. We can do anything. They can I mean, look what they're doing with things, but it still takes money. So, so that decides who we take it to. You know, and obviously the material decides it also. What you're, you know, CBS is very specific, and ABC is very specific. But, um, but uh, you know, I think we, we, we uh, uh, you know, we're eager to be in business with anybody we can be in business with. Uh, we have a lot of TV fans here in the audience who I think would enjoy getting a sort of a sneak peek into how you actually make a show, the process of, you know, from idea to being on screen. So I, I think Sharp Objects could be a good example to run through if if Marcy and, and, and Poncho are up for it. But could you tell us briefly, what did that process look like? Well, it took, as I, I mentioned, it took a long time. The novel's written, it takes time. They try to deliver as a, uh, develop it as a feature. They actually write a feature script. That doesn't happen. It's controlled by, let's say, E1. It's more complicated than that. It right? was controlled by Blumhouse through, Jump, through right, a, a predecessor to right, E1. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, um, and 
there is this, you know, where it starts to time with the, where this element, this time of feature TV, the novelization happens, they realize Marty Noxon, I'm doing an abbreviated well, yeah, last I mean, night. Marty, I, it's, I don't know if people were there last night. Um, Marty Noxon, who you may all know very well, uh, this had a big week this week. Um, Dietland premiered on AMC, and she's also the creator of Unreal and worked on Buffy and worked in Mad Men, and is probably one of the preeminent female showrunners uh, working today. I agree, I agree. Um, you should, and, go, you should um, go work for her. <laughs> <laughs> and Marty, actually, this was before my time, and I think I see Jessica Rhodes in the background there, um, in the back of the audience, and she was at Blumhouse. Um, now she's an independent producer making really, really fancy TV. A, 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 great, um, a great producer, by the way. Um, and um, I think this was even before Jessica, though, or maybe right at the, at the beginning of time. Well, before, Marty think, yeah. pursued Jason and heard that through her agents that Jason Blum had this book that she was obsessed with and he was thinking about developing a kind of scary, more the whiplash type scary um, movie and pursued him and eventually got to him and made her case. Now this is like five years ago as to why this particular novel should be a television show and not a film. And I think that's a really interesting takeaway because there's a lot of discussion last night about the idea and I think Pancho was alluding to it that you have these beloved novels um, that maybe their time has come to be put into a filmed entertainment context because often beloved novels that are turned into films disappoint and some of it is disappointing because the, the, the time allotted for the storytelling is simply not there and in this era of limited series and kind of, you know, premium, premium feature film elements being brought into television, great novels, um, popular great novels are having a moment. And so it went from there to a script being written. E1, the company that preceded E1 through various mergers um, had the, uh, the, a relationship with Jason Blum. It then became a property of E1 television. And and uh, Jessica was the uh, fearless and intrepid um, executive trying to get various configurations of the project put together. I mean, that, there, that was really the challenge. challenge and there was, were many. Was getting also to get all the people and making it happen at the same time. Okay, and and uh, and you know, and and in very sort of brief steps, it's the script. Uh, with Jessica and, and WME really pushing, and Amy Adams, and then Jean-Marc Vallée, and then uh, um, uh, a pitch to HBO, and they bought it in the room. Well, a pitch to, right. we took it to, Pancho and I, uh, I, I'm I'm actually probably full disclosure. I was at E1 during part of this process, and now I'm at Blumhouse, probably because of that show. Um, so it, I've been on multiple sides of the sharp objects. Uh, Journey, but you guys took it to we five, four buyers. Four buyers. We, I had multiple gonna, I offers. Gonna, gonna give, yeah, it's of a competitive course, situation. Like, uh, show off. People love that so, stuff. Um, and, <laughs> but it was very, but it was very targeted in terms of the buyers. It was, it was four, uh, and HBO loved it in the room. They, they pitched out. You know, everybody was there. Every, you know, Amy Gillian, Amy was an EP on this. Amy Gillian, John Mark, uh, everybody. The, and and the series, in broad strokes, uh, was pitched out, and uh, they were mad about it. And then it was just about. It was more complicated than that, right, Jessica? But anyway, uh, but then we we you know uh, just the timing of it and and all the details that are going into it. You know, and and where do we shoot it? And how do we build this? Stunning Victorian house. Or how much of it do we build? And 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 it all worked out. But it took, you know, the the you know we went to. So that that section well, took two and, and a half and, three years. And look, there's a decision that's made that was made during this process of people coming into the creative um, mix. Of John Mark had just been involved with Big Little Lies and had kind of agreed, kind of through the creative process to direct all those episodes. And that was not a foregone conclusion on Sharp Objects. That was, not, in fact, at the beginning of the conversation, he wasn't even really, I mean, it's it's exhausting for a director to direct eight episodes of a, of a show and then be responsible for 
delivering eight episodes, and it's, it lengthens the process tremendously. And so it was not even a foregone conclusion that he was going to do that, but then the kind of creative vision started gelling between all of these incredible folks that were involved with the project, and it became kind of, I think, I, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he would say somewhat irresistible. Um, uh, that's my bad Quebecois um, <laughs> accent. Um, and um, that changes the, the, the scope of how something comes to market as well, because that moves it from something that we can make over a nine-month period of time into something that looks more like an 18-month period of time. And um, you know, I think all the right things happened, um, but there's obviously a little magic in the universe when you start putting these things together. So we're gonna we're gonna kick it to audience questions in a moment, but um, I want to ask one last question of everyone. What advice would you give somebody who might be in the audience who wants to work at a studio? What would you tell them? So the question is, do you want to work at a studio? Or you just want to be working in in the business, okay? At a studio specifically. Or conversely, what, what advice would you give your younger self? Well, well but I listen, my, the advice that I give is, is that, you know, we tend to often, you know, I remember you went to film school, if you didn't go to film school, but you came in, everybody wanted to be a writer, they want to be a director, they want to be a star. They all want to be the... The, 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 the position that has the fewest jobs, okay? This tends to be the case. And one thing I've always said to people is, the, the business is so many different jobs. I didn't know this job existed when I moved to Los Angeles 28 years ago. And, and they are, you know, so I've always said to people to keep their minds, keep an open mind about the jobs because you will gravitate. If you want it, you can get it, and you will gravitate to sometimes to areas that you just don't even know about that you realize that maybe you love more or you might really excel in. So that's, I th you know, so I don't, you know, and I think that would apply to a studio also. It is all about making television shows and, and whether you're a network, and I was at network for 15 years, or you're an independent producer, which I've also done, you know, it's really about loving it, talking to anybody you can talk to, and, and building relationships. And, and if you're not in that case, and you have passion, it'll open doors. I believe that. I think to jump, uh, you know, off of that, I think having a... I'm sorry, if you are a nut, Kate, you, you can also get ahead, too, so... <laughs> I think having a really strong point of view and um, and really sticking by it, uh, really trying to be able... And this is hard, and, and, and something that I've learned and just continuing to learn is um, to just, you know, be have a really strong point of view and be confident, know what you like, know what you don't like, um, and sometimes that can get a little bit gray, um, but I think reading is as much as you can, watching as much as you can, so you can start to form those opinions for yourself. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think reading everything and watching everything and com understanding why you like the things that you like and why you don't like the things that you don't like, conversations about what you don't like are as illustrative as conversations about things that you like. Um, and then I think just this idea that you, when you're talking about the sharp objects process, you guys hung in for however many years that is. Um, there are a lot of those stories where people start working on something because they've optioned a piece and you get through your first 12 months and you haven't figured it out and then there's another 12 months and you haven't figured it out. And um, the idea that you get passionate about something and you hold on to it and you don't stop until you make the thing that you want to make, um, those I, that's kind of at a very basic level the, the best version of these executives. Um, I don't know who this woman is that you guys keep calling out. Where is she? Who is it? Jessica Rhodes. Hi. So please stand I, up. I don't, She's too busy now. I don't know you, but I was at the, the premiere last night. Big shout out to you. 62 of them up here. Very clearly, you dug into something and loved it and didn't give up. And when people see that in a, in a creative process, they feel like, oh, she's as obsessed with this as I am. And that's when, you know, you can spend, you can work for eight years on a project and nobody, nobody walks away. So um, if that's a part of you, if that's a piece of you, this is a great job for you to have. And now we are going to kick it to the audience for questions. OK, you over there. You had your hand up first. You. Yes, you. <laughs> Hi. Um, from, as a writer or creative, what do you think is the most important thing to 
You know, I think in this marketplace, um, there, there are a lot of access points that didn't exist. There are, um, we have a relationship with a company called Crypt TV. Now, it's in the genre space, but they, um, you, you know, the, there are curation um, platforms that work with emerging talent and that are open to giving people a platform to kind of have your work seen. And I'm not going to be able to name them all, but I, you know, those didn't exist five years ago. They now exist in, in uh, great numbers now. And I would find places that are showcasing work that have um, a sensibility that lines up with yours and really work to find ways to showcase your work. Because we, I know we discover a lot of talent from, you know, what I call early stage incubator platforms. And it used to be, you know, Pancho and I have been doing this a long time and have circled the same companies and worked together at various places. I mean, we had something years ago at 20th Century Fox called Fox Labs, where we had a, a lot of uh, young executives trying to find people coming out of film school. And then they'd write scripts. And look, that, that's a hard road to climb, but there's this great equalizer where your work can actually be seen. And so focus on getting your work seen. Make short films. I mean, you know, people can shoot great stuff on the cameras right now that people have access to are amazing. People shoot stuff on crazily iPhones. And get your work seen, get your voice heard. I, when uh, I was working at Spike a few years ago, and uh, Spike and Comedy Central were in the same banner and they're on the same floor, and somebody dropped off the videotape at reception, and somebody watched it, and it became a television show. So it Which can one? happen. Which one? Uh, uh, I'm blank. I knew you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> I, I, if somebody said it, I'd know it. But it is, it is difficult. It's difficult when you're not in Los Angeles, let's yeah. be honest, okay? If you're, when you're not in Los Angeles, and you're writing, and you're writing a little bit in a vacuum, and yes, there are script competitions. Or, you know, the, the key thing is to make sure people are reacting to what you're writing. And if your family's not reacting to how you're writing, it, it, you know, then 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 you got to listen also. And and sharing it with people. And that's why it's sometimes really important to come to move to where people are centered because a lot of it is just getting feedback and working with other writers who know somebody who gets you a job as a writer's assistant on a production who gives you, a, I mean, there are many ways to do it and there is not, it is not a science, okay, but it's harder to do it from afar. I think that's fair. Yeah, go ahead, right there. I will say um, one of the, I was an agent for a long time. Uh, and so deal making is, is a part of my DNA. But I will say the particular interesting aspect to making deals at independent studios is that uh, agents and attorneys love to tell me that my competitor just spent three times the amount of money that I was willing to spend. Um, and, and often when you vet that conversation, that's not true. <laughs> And, and, uh, and everything's always competitive, by the way. Yeah, it's competitive, but they won't tell you it is. Except it's not. Um, so I think um, after a really long time, I think I think most of us have a gut about when we're being hosed and when we're not. <laughs> so there are moments when I'm like, that doesn't feel right. I, I don't think that's real. I don't think my friend at another company would agree to that bananas term you just threw out to me. Um, but we, as I said before, we all have to be aggressive. So it's it's about understanding um, the ramifications to the choices that you're making. Um, when you decide to give on something in particular, how does that affect the show going forward? And then how does it affect your job going forward? Because as soon as you do something that other people haven't done before, it comes up in every business affairs conversation you will ever have again. And so that little special thing you did that one time, that is not a secret. 
you can say no quote and no, you can't cite it ever again, but it doesn't matter. It comes back to you. Um, but when we're building businesses, and I'm sure I speak for all of us, we have to have an eye toward what is a long, the long-term asset value of the companies that we're building. And if we make too many special circumstances, um, those things can actually eat away the profitability of a show. And all of a sudden, you're seven years in, and you've made a lot of shows, and they're going well, except you screwed up on this, and you screwed up on that in terms of um, how you're paying and who you're paying. And all of a sudden, it's not a business anymore. Um, I would, I, I, we probably don't have time for all of us, but I would just say, I think your question was about working with the various platforms. And the one thing that I think is exciting in deal making, and I'm, um, I come from the deal making side of the business, um, is that there's a lot of interesting conversations to have with even traditional buyers. And without going into kind of confidential details, the deal we ultimately made with HBO for Sharp Objects was, trying to solve it was there was a competitive situation that they were not apples to apples deals we were able to sit down with HBO which we really felt was the right home we felt that they were the creatively right place to be and their deal was not as good as someone else's and we were able to through a process of transparency have them work with us to find something that made it as favorable to us and to the talent that were involved. And that is, you know, I worry less about precedent in working with with platforms in this landscape because everyone's changing. Amazon, for example, as their business has grown and as they've expanded into multiple markets, has continued to rewrite how they'd like to be in business with providers like us, with pure content play companies. And I have to say, you know, there have been versions of it that have been like, what? And there have been more recent versions of it where they've come to us and, uh, you know, they have just fundamental kind of fairness components to it. And if you kind of can see that and you can see how the buyer, and we're on the sell side and there's a buy side, and this is just plain old kind of business economics, if everybody can kind of emerge without there being a winner and a loser, and um, there's a lot of, there's a lot more flexibility uh, than people think. I, the, the traditional broadcasters continue to be the most strident in their business models, and, and, and that's for obvious reasons. They're trying to figure out what their future looks like. Mm -hmm. Okay, question over here. Yep. Um, so, whenever you're working with uh, new talent, what kind of stage do you like them to be at? Not as far as experience, but for the project they're working on. Like, obviously, you're talking about the sharp objects, it's based off the book, uh, and, you know, shit like that, but for, um, for a new person like that, uh, do you want their idea to be fully fleshed out? Like if we want to do a season of something, pilot all the episode, or do you kind of like to be a bit more malleable to where you as a studio can work with the new talent and actually kind of meet in the middle on the, on the project? I think um, for us, it, it really depends. It, it, it can start with a book, it can, and we, we bring the book to a writer. It can start with a general meeting, and the writer says, I really want to explore this world or this genre or this character. And we say, great, like let's continue to talk. Um, so it really, at any stage for us, um, we're open. I think when we go out and pitch, we really um, want to make sure that the pilot story is fully fleshed out. We want to uh, make sure that the tone um, is really specific, um, the sense of place, the character evolution, um, and really map out what that first season looks like, beginning, middle, and end, and more and more. That, that, is, that is one of the big changes, yeah. okay, in recent years is that the, yes, the pilot, but even more importantly than the pilot, okay, that the season, and not, and, and really specifically the season, and not just the season, they want to know that you have, maybe not in as much detail, that you can convince them that they can go beyond that. That is, that is I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's really, really changed now because people are going, one, they're going direct to series. It's also, we're living in a completely, not completely, but a very serialized world now, which wasn't always the case. 
We, the two of us, worked on a project um, that we uh, had a book, and we were looking for a writer. And we went, we took the writer into Hulu a couple months ago, and we sat with this writer and made sure she had the first season fully fleshed out. Um, and they'd already bought the book, um, and the book was a roadmap. Um, but really, like, then what what launches you into se- season two? How is this show going to be sustainable if it's an ongoing series? Well, I think that's all the time we have for today, but thank you to our panelists for sharing your time and thank you to the audience for coming. Thank you all for tuning in to this live release of our ATX Festival panel. Please come back and listen to the variety of topics coming your way from writer's rooms to reunions to industry insider issues. This podcast was made possible by our partners, Matica Productions and the Forever Dog Network. For more information on us and our podcast projects, please visit atxfestival.com and atvxp.com slash podcasts. Next year's festival dates are June 6th through 9th, 2019, and passes are available now.